Hey friends, welcome to God on Tap. As always, I am Nike Spalding and yesterday I opened up a fire hydrant and made you drink out of it for an introduction to Amos. So if you missed that one, I would highly encourage you to go back. But if you're like, just the goods, ma'am, just the goods, then we are going to jump into that today. So today is Amos 1 verses 2 through 5, Amos 1 verses 2 through 5. And so let's jump right in. Here's the word of the Lord. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send fire upon the house of Hazael and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon, and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden, and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. This is the word of God. All right, friends. Well, like we talked about yesterday, Amos is a prophet who is going to be addressing Israel. And so you're like, yeah, yeah, I remember that. So it's very odd to me that we're talking about Damascus. Yes, It is. And so let's talk about why we would do that. So let's say you were a foreigner and uh, you had to come to a people group and you had to deliver really bad news to them like, hey, your wickedness is going to be punished. Because that's kind of not like really Starbucks. Hey, can I buy you a cup of coffee? By the way, your wickedness is going to bring on God's judgment. Uh, You wouldn't probably lead with that. Right. And not only that, you have a heartfelt desire to see repentance. Right? You, you're really bringing a message of God is frustrated, not so you can dunk on them, but really because you would hope that they would say, oh, goodness, oh, goodness, we, we must do better. We must turn back from our wicked ways. So the question becomes, well, how would you do that? Well, I think Amos actually gives us a really cool pattern. Here's the thing. If I were trying to convince, let's say I was like, so I am an aunt. I have a niece, nephew, niece who I'm crazy about. And let's say I were trying to tell my biggest my big, she's not the biggest, but the oldest one. Let's say I was trying to tell Jen, hey, your wickedness is not going to go unpunished. I'm going to have to punish you. But I wanted to give her a chance to repent. Or I wanted her to at least to empathize with my message. What I might actually start with is by saying, hey, do you see how AJ, your little sister, is being bad? And I can imagine my oldest niece's, you know, I could see her chest puff, puff up and be like, yes. And I'd be like, do you agree that in her wickedness that she deserves a timeout? Like, are we in agreement here that wickedness deserves consequences? And I can see Jaden being like, yes, drop the hammer. No, no. I mean, she loves her little sister, but you get what I'm saying. Like, you can understand that Amos is brilliantly starting with the foreign nations. Now, these are nations that are not exactly best buds with Israel. Israel does not care for these nations. So, Amos is coming to Israel, eventually going to get to the message of your wickedness cannot stand. But he is very brilliantly saying, oh, um, you guys see Damascus over there? And they're like, yes. He's like, they are being wicked. And they're like, oh, yeah. And what Amos is doing is he's going to establish this pattern. We're going to see in the first chapter, first chapter and a half of uh, a couple of chapters of Amos, that he is going to talk about the surrounding nations to Israel. And what he is brilliantly doing is he's going to get Israel to say, yes, we agree we, we say God is right to when he sees wickedness to punish that. 
that there should be consequences for that. And then you can, and once you establish that, then Amos is going to very brilliantly turn it ever so slightly and go, it's funny that you would say that. I have some accusations for you. It's a, it's a brilliant literary device that's going on here. It also very brilliantly establishes that God is also sovereign over all the nations. He has a very special relationship with Israel. But God has a uh, relationship with every human that's ever existed. He has made every human in his image. He has a relationship with them. And so in the same way that he is going to be frustrated at the way that Israel is behaving, God is also frustrated when the nations do violent things. And so what we're going to see in these first few chapters of the book of Amos is that they are committing international war crimes, and he is going to send his prophet to Israel to talk about these things and the consequences that are coming. And so that's what we're seeing today is that God is very brilliantly trying to get Israel to repent. He is going to use Amos. And the tactic that he is using very brilliantly is let's talk about someone else. And once you are rightly fired up at injustice, I will remind you, you are also unjust. It's not unlike when Nathan comes to David after the Bathsheba incident and Nathan's like, hey man, I've got a story to tell you. There was a man that took another man's lamb and this, the man that took it, he was super rich. And the one that he took it from, that dude was poor. And David's like, oh my gosh. And he's like, I know what's worse is he kills the lamb. And David at this point is like, you know, like chest is beating and he's like, this guy must die. And he's like, bro, I'm so glad you said that. And then I like to imagine he opens up like a compact and puts the mirror in front. I know he didn't, but I like to think that he does. And he like picks up a mirror and puts it in front of his face. And he's like, bro, that dude is you. Like, I don't know. I would, would love to see what that moment looked like. I feel like it would be a very intense moment. But David gets the point, and he repents. And we see a very pi- a beautiful picture of humility and repentance in David, an incredible example for believers to say, oh, because God does that. He puts mirrors up in front of us all the time to show us our sin. And so I believe this is part of what God is doing. Is he's showing his care for the nations, as well as he's going to hopefully get Israel to go, you're right, injustice should be punished. And so this first country that we look at, I'm going to establish the pattern for you. So what I want you to see is that there's going to be a pattern that we're going to look at as Amos builds. And the pattern is like this. It's it's called a judgment oracle. Okay, so judgment is, you know, there's a consequence for your sin. Oracle is this verbal thing that's being proclaimed. And it, it's going to follow a pattern. Amos is going to, he has very predictable patterns in this book, which is helpful to us because it helps us to know what's going on. So there's always an introduction. And it starts with, for three transgressions of whoever, So in our case today, it's Damascus. And for four, I will not revoke the punishment. That's just a literary device to say, you've done a lot of wrong. Like you've done, like, it's not a literal three and four. It's a, it's just a literary device to say, hey, you have committed a lot of crimes. Here, here it is. So this is the introduction. For three transgressions of blank and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. That's our introduction. Then in the middle, we have the accusation, which is what they've done wrong. So today we have the threshing of Gilead, the violence that's being brought up against Gilead. So you have your introduction, then you have your accusation, and then you have your judgment. So because of that, I'm going to burn you to the ground. Okay, so which is more or less what God is saying here. A um, couple of things to point out. The introduction is usually going to be very clear. It's going to be a country that's going to be named. Uh, and we're going to build. We're going to go through foreign nations and then eventually get to the southern kingdom of Judah and then eventually make our way to the north. The accusations, gosh, y'all, these are so important because it reveals to us what makes God mad. And so I think it's really important for us to not back away from God's anger. I think that 
So gosh, you can't have a podcast today without mentioning the word Enneagram. So there it is. I said the word Enneagram, but I I am an eight on the Enneagram. And as a female eight in evangelical culture, it took me a long time to figure out what, what is my role other than to constantly live with a governor on, right? I feel like I live with a break on most of the time that as fast and as loud and as angry as I want to be is not going to be constructive to the, to the subculture that I'm a part of. Um, and I have, I've been frustrated at times, if I'm being honest, because I felt like if I was a guy, it'd be a little different. Or if I felt like if I lived in other places other than the evangelical subculture that I'm a part of, maybe it'd be different. But either way, you become all things to all people. But I will tell y'all, I'm starting to learn my place in the church. And I think AIDS have a really important role to play, and that is to show people how appropriately wielded anger can be used. I, I do not... I, I can. I'm a sinner, so when I'm sinning, sure, my my fire, my rage and anger can come out like a like a hose that's just you know unwieldy. But for the most part, um, because God is maturing me to be more like His Son, eights, if we're mature, have this ability to really directly focus our anger on what it is that makes us mad, and God does that same thing. I think in the church, anger scares us. And there's certainly unwielded anger that the Bible talks about that we should get under control, that it can burn a whole place to the ground. I know that. But in these accusations, in this intro accusation, judgment, oracle that we see, in the accusation part, these are the things that that make God mad. And he's not, he's not like rapid fire spraying his anger all around. He is very specifically naming the things that he will not abide with. And so in this first one is this violence against a people group. And God is not okay with that. This threshing of Gilead, whatever, whatever Damascus is doing against Gilead, this violence that, God, that Damascus is bringing against Gilead, God cares about that. And he's angry about it. And so friends, as we progress through the book of Amos, when we get to these accusation parts, oh my word, like zoom in on those, double click on them, read the extra Wikipedia page that comes with them, so to speak, because they are going to be so informative to the kingdom ethic that God has established. And I think we live in a culture that sometimes anger scares us. And I get it. Like there are plenty of people who have used anger in abusive ways. So I get that. But we've got to have people in the church who can be angry and do not sin, as Scripture commands us to do. And I think that the Bible gives us the ability to see what are those things that we should, with God, agree with and be angry about. And that's what these accusations are. So for us today, our introduction is Damascus. Our accusation is that they have they have brought violence against Gilead, that Damascus has brought violence against Gilead. And Gilead, of course, is an area in this in this part of the world. And then it follows with judgment, what's going to happen. The judgment part of the oracle can sometimes sound very cosmic. So God uses cosmic language a lot. And we're going to see this unfold in Amos, that you'll see like the mountains shake and quiver. And, um, and we even saw this as our, as our passage. It says, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. So this is how we know, uh-oh, God is angry. This is how the book of Amos starts. Amos, a prophet from Tekoa, I'm talking to these fools up in the north. Here's what's about to go on. By the way, God is roaring from Jerusalem. And you're like, um... That's not a good image, okay? A, a lion roaring from Jerusalem, not a good image. He's upset. God is upset. And then it says, the pastures of the shepherds mourn, so down low the pastures are low, and the top of Mount Carmel withers. Did the top of Mount Carmel wither? No. What is he saying? Look, there's a power and a thoroughness to God that he will often use cosmic language to get the point across. I'm going to burn this whole thing to the ground. Now, 
Um, there's actual judgment to come, but sometimes it's not always on the cosmic level. They're using this hyperbolic language to say it will be complete, it will be righteous judgment, and it will have devastating effects upon you. But the stars probably won't fall from the sky, and the top of Mount Carmel probably won't wither. But it will be bad for Damascus because of their unrelenting violence. God will come and and make he will, he will make it right again. And so specifically, he says that I will, the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kerr, which is really interesting because um, if you're tempted to think that God's a liar, then you can just flip over a couple of pages back in your Bible, read 2 Kings 16, 9, and that's exactly what we see happens. That God, through Amos, is like, hey guys, you cannot be violent against these people and expect that to go unpunished. And then in 2 Kings 16, 9, we see the fulfillment of this. That these people of Syria, they do go into exile to Kerr. Which is crazy. And so it does begin to remind us when God says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. And so... That's what's going on in these first few verses, that we are going to, we are establishing a pattern. This is a really important pattern that we're going to see. We're going to see introduction, accusation, judgment. We're going to see it uh, through several foreign nations, and then we're also going to see it with Judah, and then we're going to see it with Israel. And so in these first few chapters, though, because we're dealing with international nations, it's really language of international war crimes, these things that you're doing. So what's our big so what for us today? Um, if you're not careful and you come, everybody comes to the Bible with their own biases. We can't help it. We, we cannot help it. Uh, so I come from middle class, white woman, grown up in, I grew up in mostly Oklahoma, spent a little bit of time in California, but mostly in the Bible Belt. Um, I have a theological education from a particular brand of theology from DTS. Like every, like if you, the better Bible students are the ones who grow up and begin to understand, okay, I approach the text very differently than uh, a man, opposite of me, so man from Nigeria who grew up uh, maybe 100 years ago and was trained in a different seminary or had no training at all, okay? Like, do you get what I'm saying? That you bring your lenses to the Bible. So what can happen is if you're reading the Bible in the West in an area where you're probably grown up in some amount of affluence maybe, or let me just be, let me be more direct. I have not grown up oppressed, I haven't. Now, have I grown up with hardship? Yes. But the word oppressed? No. I have not grown up oppressed. Um, At least not to the scale that what God is referencing here in Amos. If you have grown up oppressed, it's a little bit easier, I think, to come to these texts and see them as good news. So what do I mean by that? If you haven't grown up oppressed, sometimes you can look at the language of God and the judgment that he brings and you can be thinking, that sounds really harsh. Because I think sometimes we accidentally put ourselves in the shoes of the oppressors. We think of ourselves as those in Damascus. But what if you took off your Damascus lens and put on your Gilead lens? Like what if you, instead of thinking of yourself as the people who might be, and look, some of us are those people. We need to repent of the times that we have not cared for the poor or we have um, not dealt with kingdom ethics. But many of us have been in a position where we're on top. But what if you took those shoes off and slipped on the shoes or the sandals or whatever you want to say, or walked in the footsteps of those who have been oppressed. When you see a God who comes and he's sovereign over the nations, he's not in relationship with Damascus in the same way that he's in relationship with the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. He, it's different. 
And yet, he cares for the people of Gilead. So much so that when a more powerful nation comes and does destructive violence to them, God does not look the other way. He looks right at it and sends his prophet and he's like, hey, stop it. Stop it or I will take you down. And because they don't, we see God does that very thing, that he takes them down for the, for the wickedness and the violence that they brought upon Gilead. And if you have been oppressed or you are a Gileadite at this time, a Gileadocian, a Gileadite, whatever they are, a Gileadian, this is good news. You rejoice in the day that there is justice for what has happened to you. And so our big show, what is, as we are getting into Amos, he's going to say really harsh things to the rich, to the mighty, to the people of God. And it's going to be tempting for us to want to think, wow, God has an anger problem. He should calm down. But if we will keep in the back of our minds always, always when we're reading the Bible that God is good and God does good and he can never violate that. And so whatever God is doing, it must be the ultimate good. And if we can begin to read the text, not as those who are in danger of God's judgment, but instead as those who would who would ally ourselves and unite ourselves with the oppressed in such a way to say that we need God to come and set the captives free. We need God to set right the injustice in the world. If we will ally ourselves with the weak, which is what God does, is that he comes and he joins himself with the weak, with the humble, with those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He is the one that comes and identifies with them. He has a son born in a lonely manger from a no-name town that comes and identifies with the poor and the disinherited. If we will do that, then we will see that these harsh messages of judgment are in fact good news because we have a God who deeply, deeply, cares about justice and righteousness. And for that, that is in fact good news and a warning. It is a warning, but it is good news as well. And so this is what I would encourage you to pray about is that you would help ask God to help you to have a goggles and a lens to see the Bible through the eyes of those who need God's rescuing and to see that as heralding good news today. All right, friends, if nobody's told you today that they love you, I do. Way more importantly, The God of the nations is deeply in love with you. Peace out.